We are in Mac, uh, Mark chapter 4 today. In the introduction to this gospel, um, a few weeks ago I mentioned that one of the unique features of this book is that um, Mark has these two explanatory sections in the book. In other words, there's two sections that are very different than the rest of the book. Um, It's no secret that Mark spends less time on the teaching of Jesus than some of the other Gospels. In fact, Matthew, I think I showed that to you when I held up my Bible. I have a red-letter edition of the Bible. Um, But if you remember, I kind of held it up and I flipped the pages to it and showed you how much red there is in Matthew's Gospel and how much black there is in Mark's Gospel. The red is Jesus talking. Um, It's all the places where Jesus is quoted or whatever. And um, there's no secret that Mark really doesn't focus on what Jesus taught as much as he focuses on what Jesus did. Because remember, Mark's purpose and plan is to show us through the events, show us through the things that he did, that he is both Messiah and the Son of God. So he basically uses the the events of Jesus' life specifically to teach that. Matthew focuses much more on the actual teaching of Jesus, which again is one reason why we have multiple Gospels. Each one has a different focus and a different purpose, and through the four Gospels we get this full 4D picture, if you will, of Jesus Christ. And so each author sort of fulfills his place, if you will, in presenting the Gospel um, gospel accounts to us. And so Mark, because he doesn't focus so much on the teaching, focuses more on the events, there's these two sections that stand out where he does focus on Jesus' teaching. And Scholars refer to it as the explanatory sections. And one of them is our chapter today, which is chapter 4. The second one comes a little bit later, and it's in chapter 13. It has to do with end times, where Jesus describes what's going to be coming. And so that's a teaching section. So what we have here are these two explanatory, or two primarily teaching sections, where Mark focuses on the teaching of Jesus. So again, chapter 4 and chapter 13. Chapter 4, what Jesus focuses on is the nature of the kingdom of God. So he's going to teach us about the nature of the kingdom of God, and he's going to do it through five parables. We're going to look at five parables this morning. But before we do that, I want to explain something briefly here. We need to kind of look at or address Jesus' use of parables, why he did that, what they are. So a parable, anybody know what a parable is? Somebody want to summarize that for me? Take a stab at it? Is it a story to give an example? Yeah, it is. It's a story to give an example. If you want a specific definition... A parable is an illustration or a short story that uses elements of contemporary culture and society to convey a spiritual or moral truth. So again, what it is, is it takes elements from, in this case, today's culture and society, something common to us, and uses those as an example to tell a story to teach a moral or a spiritual truth. And so that's what Jesus did. And so he will use things from his culture, his society, to teach spiritual truths to people. And there's a couple of reasons why this happens. Jesus told his disciples the reasons why he used parables. He's going to hint at that today, but you don't have to turn here. But Matthew chapter 13, Jesus reveals that one of the reasons he spoke in parables was to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God to those who would receive them. So one reason he used parables was to further explain and to reveal truths about God, about God's kingdom, about himself, to people that were willing to receive it and listen. But he also tells us in Matthew 13 that he spoke in parables to hide those same mysteries from those who would not receive them, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. So what you have in the use of parables is sort of twofold. 
To those who are willing to receive and to accept, those who had soft hearts, had ears to listen, as Jesus refers to them, he used those parables to explain further mystery, mysteries about God's kingdom. But he also used those parables to hide those things from people that would not receive them, whose hearts were hard. So it has this double purpose, to reveal and to hide, all depending on the audience. Now the one thing we have to also stress here is that Jesus never used parables to describe or hide the means of salvation. Anytime Jesus spoke of salvation specifically, he was very clear. It's only when he was further revealing additional mysteries about the kingdom of God that he used the parables. So what you really have is Jesus being open and honest and straightforward in the simplest terms, telling people how they must be saved. But when it came to revealing additional things beyond that, that's where he used the parables. We're going to see why as we go through this text today. The first parable is found in the very first uh, 25 verses or so of Mark. And it's the parable of the sower. I'm going to read chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea of the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. He was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this first parable, he uses from a very common thing. They were an agricultural society, farmers sowing seeds. So Jesus uses a, a contemporary example to drive home some points here. And this parable is about a sower, a sower who goes out to plant his crops. It says that he scatters his seed all over the place, pretty much covers the ground. Some of the seed, it says, fell on the uh, side of the road, and it says that birds came and ate that. Some of the seed, he says, fell on areas where there were more rocks than soil, and so the plants couldn't grow any roots, so they wouldn't survive. Other seed, he said, fell in these areas infested with thorny plants. A better translation of that might be weeds. That's our equivalent of weeds today. And it says that those rose up, choked off the plants, and killed them. But then he said some of the seed actually fell on good soil, where he says it yielded bountiful crops, 30, 60, and 100-fold. He's going to explain to us exactly what he means by this, but before he does that, something happens. Look at verses 10 through 12. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. Well, his disciples actually come to him and ask him about the parables. What we find elsewhere in the Gospels is that the specific question they ask is, Why are you teaching in parables, Jesus? They could see that he wasn't being... um, I'll say specifically clear about what he was teaching there. Not yet, anyway. So they ask him, why, why do you teach this way among the crowds? In fact, the other Gospels record the word them. The disciples specifically say, why do you teach them in parables? It's important because it indicates someone other than Jesus' followers. He was speaking one way to his closest disciples and another way to his followers. He used the parables to speak, or I mean, another way to speak to the crowds. 
Jesus answers this question in verse 11 there of chapter 4. He says, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, get everything in parables. Notice what he says there. The reason I speak clearly to you, my followers, in a way that doesn't include the parables, is because to you it's been granted to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Again, not salvation per se, but rather the mysteries of the kingdom of God, further revelation, additional information. But he says to others, it's a secret. It's going to be hidden from them. And what we find elsewhere is that it all has to do with the condition of their hearts. Were they willing to accept or not? So it all has to do with revealing the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So some will accept those mysteries and some will not. Jesus knew who they were. Part of the issue of the Use of parables helps to define that. Jesus is going to use a little bit, a little bit of language later. If you're really interested in what an individual is saying, you will work hard at trying to understand what he's saying. I once had somebody come up to me and mention um, they had gone to hear Ed DeZago's teaching at um, Grace in one of his Sunday school classes, and they said initially they didn't go back because they said it was so hard. It was really hard. I mean, it was pretty deep and stuff. It wasn't until they came back a little bit later that they started finding out that what he was teaching was deep and full of nutrients. And so they stuck around. And the more they stuck around, the easier it became. Then they're like, how can we come back the first time? When you really appreciate and see something and you want to know more, you will work diligently in understanding it. And that's the nature of parables. I didn't quite get that, Jesus. I'm not really sure what you said. So you go and ask him about it. His disciples did that. And that's the example we have here. And so the parables have a way of doing that. Sort of weeding out who's willing to listen, who's unwilling to listen, who has a soft heart, a willingness to learn, who has a hard heart and simply is there for other reasons. Mystery here refers to the things that God has not previously revealed. And that's key to this text as well. It's a reference to further revelation. So in this sense, only Jesus' followers were granted the right and ability to understand more about the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus was unwilling to reveal certain truths about the kingdom of God to those who weren't committed to him, weren't committed to listen, weren't committed to understand. In fact, he quotes Isaiah 6-9 here. It's ultimately a fulfillment of prophecy, verse 12 so that, or in order that, while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Basically, it's a a judgment against them. Jesus said, this is in fulfillment of what Isaiah said. They're going to listen, but not really hear. They're going to see me and not accept me. And so, in some respects, the use of parables was a form of judgment as well. Ed DeZago one time had said, did you ever notice, Mike, I was in a meeting with him on a Wednesday evening, he said, did you ever notice how often God's last element of judgment before he acts is silence? He just stops talking. Refuses to reveal more. What's interesting, in the book of Revelation, right before the wrath of God is poured out, it says that everything went silent in heaven for 30 minutes. It's exactly what you see here. Jesus refused to reveal additional details about the kingdom of God, mysteries that had not been revealed before to those who absolutely refused to accept him. 
So what's the point of this particular parable then? Because what we're going to find is that these five parables are going to reveal to us specifically truths about the kingdom of God, mysteries about the kingdom of God. Jesus now goes on to explain in verses 13 through 20 exactly what this meant. His disciples come to him and they say, why do you do this? They also want to understand it. And so in verses 13 through 20, we see Jesus say this, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Who's the sower in this case, do you suppose? Just some random farmer? Who's the sower? Yeah, it's Jesus. Jesus is the sower. What do you suppose the word is? The gospel. What's that? It's the season. It's gospel. It's... The, the truth of God's word. So he says, the sower starts sowing the word. Verse 15, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. The Bible tells us that Satan blinds the eyes of the unsaved. He's at work, doing the best he can to prevent people from hearing and receiving the word of God. And so some of this word, the gospel goes out, some people are blind. Satan steals the seed before it has an opportunity to begin to grow. He goes on. The second group of people, in a similar way, verse 16, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But look what happens. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. We saw that with Jesus as well or large portions of the crowd all of a sudden disappear. They received him initially with great joy. He's healing them. They're bringing the masses to him, and he's casting out demons, and they love what they see. It's a giant circus as far as they're concerned. But as soon as things get a little bit more difficult, they see the religious leaders um, rejecting Christ, plotting to kill him. What do they do? That's not worth it. They scatter. They go somewhere else third group of people says 18 and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns these are the ones who have heard the word but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful this third group here also superficially received the gospel may even verbally make a commitment to Christ we, we might say here but get caught up in the riches of the world and the things of the world and the worries and fears and all that. And ultimately what we find here is that the word is unfruitful for them as well. What that means is they are unsaved. Do you think we have people in the church like this today? I think I've mentioned this multiple times on Pastor Jim's um, assessment that the average American church probably has about 50% of the people that are unsaved in the church that are professing to know Christ. There was a recent event over the course, well, over the course of the last few weeks here. You may or may not have heard of it. Um, you know who James McDonald is? Walking the Word. It was just a release from his church. Um, it's been stuff going on for years. Accusations about the way that he's managed his church and the finances and um, his ministry and um, sin issues, gambling issues, all kinds of things. That's all come to a head recently. He was just fired from his church. Um, a radio personality in Chicago 
who was led to the Lord by McDonald, um, released a tape on air with McDonald um, talking about some of his enemies and wanting to do things like download inappropriate pictures to that person's computer to frame them, all kinds of other things. The reason I mention that is not not to slam McDonald, but rather watching some of this unfold and watching um, some of the reaction by people in the church. He's a mega church pastor, for those of you that don't know it. Um, there's an awful lot of people that have been injured and hurt by this. Um, and some of the comments, as you read through them, um, it's become rather apparent that it's like the average typical church in that many of these people in the comments that you see and the things that they're saying, you question whether or not they're saved. Some of McDonald's behavior, to be real frank, makes me wonder. I'm not saying he's not or is saved, but some of the behavior and some of the things that have gone on, um, the, the hundreds and hundreds of pages of documentation, of communication and stuff, makes you sit back sometimes and go, wow, um, we can profess all we want, we can say all we want, we can say I know Jesus, but ultimately Jesus in the end, as he's talking to his disciples, says, many will say, Lord, Lord, but I didn't know him. And again, I'm not suggesting that with McDonald, I'm saying that what this has sort of revealed is how we, we idolize and worship pastors and others and, and all kinds of other stuff. And really what the bottom line comes down to, do you know Jesus Christ? Is the word fruitful in your life? And like I said, many people, this is revealing many things about the, the, the church empire that's been built called Harvest. And um, again, it's not to, to slam Harvest. It's, it's heartbreaking to see some of this unfold and the number of people that have um, sort of revealed where their hearts are at. Um, in this particular instance, and the reason I think of this is he says here, the riches of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, um, a lot of what's happened with Harvest is involving finances, wealth, riches, um, that has deceived an awful lot of people. And I would argue that while I do not know the salvation of any of these folks, Jesus here tells us that some in that camp, the word is unfruitful. They're not saved. No matter what they profess. And again, it's not a, I'm not making a judgment on any of the folks. I'm simply saying that it reveals some interesting things. When the world gets a hold of you, you may have heard the word, you may profess the word, but the deceitfulness of riches and worries of the world and desire for other things oftentimes speak louder and the word is unfruitful and ultimately doesn't lead to salvation. The last group here, if you look at verse 20, and those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So out of these three groups, I'm sorry, four groups, three of them are unsaved. It's only the fourth that ultimately accepts the word and bears fruit. The word changes them from the inside out. So what exactly is Jesus trying to tell us here with this particular parable? Like I said, these are all about the kingdom of God. And so what this parable ultimately explains is the diversity of responses to Jesus' message to the gospel. Why do some accept him when others do not? 
Why is it that um, some people hear the gospel and rejoice immediately, but then they sort of disappear and you never see them again? Why is it you see people who seem to um, accept the gospel and walk for a period of time, but then everything kind of goes sideways in the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world ultimately begin to reveal something else about where their heart is? Well, Jesus explains it here. Sometimes it's stolen by Satan. Sometimes it's simply that people get caught up with other fears and worries. Sometimes it's not worth the cost, and so the minute they face persecution, they bail because they don't want to, as Christ says, carry the cross with him. Other times, um, it's because of the riches of the world or other things that they desire more than the gospel. I'll be the first to admit that I, I have some biases um, you've heard me express my frustration sometimes with just the American church in general when I see how much of a big business it's really become. I mean, when you think about the finances and the wealth, even, even Christian music, and I, I love contemporary Christian music, but you know how much of it is driven by false teaching and false doctrine? Much of it is. And the songs we pick on Sunday mornings here, we have to be really careful because there's songs that we play in our singing that are from groups that I would never go to a concert for. And I have to look at this individual songs and say, okay, is this specific message they're giving in this song appropriate? And I have to do that with everyone because maybe the next one they do is not, theologically. And we have to be very careful with, with that now. And so what Jesus is trying to teach us here is that there's going to be a very diverse response. And he explains why it is. And it serves ultimately as, as a warning. He says, let him who has ears hear. Which camp do you fall into? It's startling to me to think that many will stand before Christ on that day of judgment and say, look at all the things we did in your name, Jesus. And Jesus is going to say, I didn't know you. Does that make any of us in this room a little concerned? You know, the one thing, as much as... um, as watching these events unfold with, with James McDonald, who by all means was always considered to be a phenomenal Bible teacher. That's what Walk in the Word is, over 2,000 radio stations. The thing that I've continued to reflect on this week is, um, oh, by the grace of God, it's not me. I can look at him and I can say, wow, how could he have done those things? How could those things have happened to him? And instead it ought to be, wow, what about me? I look at these four groups of people here and I want to make sure that I'm that fourth group I want to make sure that I'm that fourth group the other thing that this parable here reveals is the coming bountiful harvest I love this you notice that what he says is that those who accept bear fruit 30, 60 and 100 fold that's going to also come up a little bit later here but This reveals not just the the varied responses and why people respond the way they do, but the fact that ultimately it's going to end in a huge harvest. So even though, if you were to break this down in simple percentages, 75% of the people that hear the gospel, nothing happens. Now, that's not necessarily the case. I don't think we can put percentages, but I'm just doing the whole, the typical three out of four, right? So that, that fourth group, the smallest group ultimately, is going to lead to this massive, massive harvest. And that's another mystery. Because you ask yourself, how does that happen? How does that happen? Let's go on. 
He's going to lead to another parable here, the parable of the lamp, verses 21 through 23. And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears, or has an ear, to hear, let him hear. Let me ask you this. When you walk into a room and you flip on a light switch, what do you expect to happen? Yeah. The kids have these extra lamps in their bedroom that are just regular lamps, and every once in a while I'll walk by the rooms and I see the light still on, and I figure if you're not in the room, leave the lights off, right? And so I'll go hit the light switch and nothing will happen. Because they're not plugged into the light switch, you know. But when you walk in a room and you flip on that light switch, you expect it to light up. Just like when you put a lamp, in the case of the kids here, I put lamps on their desks and stuff. You don't put a lamp there and say, I should cover that up with a... Uh, oh, here's a shirt. Put it over the lamp, right? No, the whole point is you put a lamp in a room to light it up so that you can see things. The whole point is to illuminate the room, right? What's interesting about this parable is most of your translations... Do any of your translations say... Um, Verse 21, the lamp is not brought. It all says a, uh, doesn't it? What's really interesting is in the Greek it says the. Which is interesting here because it's a direct, it's, it's directly pointing to Christ. Who is the lamp in this parable? It's Jesus Christ. Okay? The reason your English translations don't translate it that way is because, well, it's a little weird. We wouldn't start it that way. Because the is the definite art. Well, you kind of miss the point if you don't see it as the, but it actually says the Lamp is not brought in to be put under a basket, to be covered up. So the point of the parable is that just like a lamp lights up a room or is intended to reveal what's in it, Jesus Christ is the lamp that reveals and sheds light on the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus Christ came as a lamp. He is not going to be put under a cover. He's not going to be quiet. Now think about that in the context of the Pharisees trying to shut him up. The scribes trying to shut him up, because that's exactly what they did. His family, if you remember, went to shut him up. Remember, his family goes out to find him, thinks he's nuts, wants to bring him back. Everybody, aside from the crowds, wanted Jesus shut up. The point of this parable is that I didn't come to be shut up. I came as a lamp. The other thing that's interesting about this is if you think about the scribes and the Pharisees, there was no way to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God apart from Christ. Just couldn't do it. There are churches today that try to understand the things of God and ignore Christ. I took a bunch of pictures as I was out in Kansas this trip. I was texting them to a couple of friends. One of them I walked by was a church that I would consider quite heretical. It's a certain denomination. But right there in the front, a big old sign that says, Come walk our labyrinth. You know what a labyrinth is? It's a Hindu circle of paths, that like a, you know those games you play where you kind of draw the path to get through the maze? It's exactly what it is. And it's, it's an Eastern mystic thing you do. You walk the labyrinth and you meditate and you pray and all that. And um, So that's what the, the sign outside their church. Come walk our labyrinth, you know. They focus more on Eastern mystic things than they do on Christ. And, and I know that simply because I know the denomination and I know where they stand on Christ. There's no way to understand salvation or the 
mysteries surrounding God's kingdom apart from Christ because he is the lamp. And that's something that his um, disciples hadn't quite grasped yet. He's teaching them that through this, but it's also something that the Pharisees, the leaders, the scribes, and the others failed to understand as well. That God was going to light up or reveal the kingdom through the lamp, Christ. There's a third parable, verses 24 through 25. He says, And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. This is an interesting one. A lot of people debate whether this is really a parable or not. I think it is, because he's referring to a standard of measure. He's making an illustration to how they sold grain. You could either sell grain by making sure that your scales were appropriate, or that they weren't. If you were somebody who made sure your scales were were right and you were honest in the way that you sold grain, you were paying careful attention to what you did. Those who did not, those who used uneven scales or put their little finger on the scale, were not. And that's exactly the point of this parable. It refers to how one listens and how one receives. Let me read that again. He says, Take care what you listen to. Be careful how you listen. Because by your standard of measure, that refers to how you listen. The standard of measure here refers to how you listen. He says, by the standard of measure, how you listen, it will be measured back to you. In other words, how you listen determines what you hear and what you receive. The standard you use to listen is the same standard that you use to give back. If you listen carefully then you receive what's being taught. If you don't, if you treat it lightly, then you won't. That holds true today. You know why we teach like we teach here, folks? I expect that you're going to have to pay attention and listen. I could come in here and dumb everything down and make it easy for you, but I don't want that. I want you to have to work a little bit. I once had somebody tell me that you can't do this. You can't teach this way because you have to, as he said, till the soil for them. Dumb it down for them. Why? Jesus himself says, you have to be careful. The standard you use to listen, how you listen, determines what you receive. And so as you look at these individuals here, he's trying to tell the disciples here, Pay attention. Listen. I use the parables to force you to listen. If you don't understand it, it makes you ask me questions. Then we can dialogue. We can talk. It's a private conversation. And through that, you're going to reap a harvest from that as well. I had a conversation with my brother brother, a number of years ago about just devotion time. And I told him, I said, one of the ways I learned to study was just by spending 30 minutes on two or three verses a day. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried to study by just doing two or three verses a day? It doesn't seem like much. But it's amazing when you start to do that and you start to look in your little cross-reference margins in the Bible and you go, huh, there's another verse over here. Oh, there's another one over here. You'd be shocked at what you can learn in just a couple of verses in God's Word. Why? Because you're being careful. You're being slow. You're mining it for everything you can see in those two or three verses. 
The rewards are huge in that. That's one of the reasons I struggle so much with the typical teaching in churches today where they'll teach the Gospel of Mark in five lessons. Because they just give you this big aerial view. And I'm not saying I'm opposed to that, it's just that when that's the only teaching you get. Or when you're not expected to be challenged. Or they simply stick to what I'll call felt needs. You know, we'll teach what they what what they need or think they need, rather than no, what God has said is is what we'll teach. And so much of your teaching today in, in many of your largest churches is driven purely by what we call felt needs. That's a term we use. When I was in seminary, it was yeah, preach to felt needs, preach to felt needs, figure out what they want because that's where their needs are, and preach to that. So you end up with, you know, how to be the world's greatest lover, or ten steps to do this, or four steps to do this. That's a, not, Again, not that that's always bad, but when that's the only diet you receive, it becomes very difficult. And what Jesus is saying is, be careful. Be careful. Who you listen to, how you listen. And so the parable of the measures here really is teaching his disciples and teaching us to be careful. To use a good standard of measure, how you study, how you learn, because in doing that, is where you learn the mysteries of God's kingdom. Those that don't do that, won't. I think this explains why, according to Barna, in the average evangelical church, which is the circle we would fit into, on a simple 10-question, very simple Bible quiz, the average Christian only gets two out of those 10 questions correct. On the simplest theological principles. That might be why right now in the millennial age group, which 35 and below, 75% say it's wrong to evangelize. How? Is that not the greatest of Jesus' commands to us, aside from loving God and loving, is make disciples? Why do you suppose that is? Well, Barna tells us it's because the generation below us here is probably one of the most biblically illiterate generations in history. They don't spend any time in the Word. And when they are taught, they're not taught the Word. They're taught Christian principles and ideas. Be careful how you listen. Because it's how you listen that will ultimately lead to a greater understanding of the mysteries of God. If you don't, they won't be revealed to you. The third, or fourth parable, the parable of the growth of the seed, verses 29, or 26 through 29. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up day by day, or gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits... He immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So this one we're going to refer to as the parable of the growth of the seed. It's very similar to that first one. However, in this one, the focus is very different. Jesus presents this farmer as one who sows and harvests the crop, but does absolutely nothing in between to make it grow. Did you catch that? He basically goes to bed and wakes up, oh look, i got a crop. He's dumbfounded by what happened. Those Randy was a farmer. Randy, did you uh, was it, was it uh, you have your milk farmers, you know, dairy farmers and all that, and then you have crop farmers and all that. You guys were crop, right? Or were you dairy? Uh, uh, livestock. Yeah. Okay, livestock and grain. Okay. 
Could your dad go out and throw the grain out and just walk away and show up a couple months later and harvest it? Not if you were to harvest. Absolutely. There's work involved, right? And that's where this parable kind of stands out. Is this is a farmer who didn't do that. He basically put the grain out, and all of a sudden, I got a crop without his work. In fact, what he does, he goes out and harvests it. Says he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. It says the soil produces crops, even says by itself. First the blade, then the head, and the mature grain in the head. It's only after the farmer sees this that the farmer goes back to work, where he actually then has to put the sickle in and harvest it. So what's the point that Jesus is trying to make with this? I think it focuses on the mysterious growth of God's kingdom. The fact that our job is to scatter the seed and then to harvest. God makes it grow. We don't know how it grows. God makes it grow. We don't know necessarily why it is that sharing the gospel with this person ultimately leads to their salvation, but sharing the gospel with this person does not. We have Exactly. You know, and, and so as you look at this particular parable, it's kind of hinting at us that God makes it grow. And our roles are to spread the seed and to harvest. It's very mysterious why it works. I don't know why it is that it took me how many months to accept the gospel. I literally graduated high school, went to college, and struggled quite a bit in the summer before that, where I would go out walking around at 2 or 3 o'clock in the, in the, at night. I was, I was severely depressed. And I would go out and I would pray. I would beg God to help me. So I get to college, and this guy chases me around on my dorm floor for months, wanting to share the gospel with me. And I even got to the point where I told him, I don't need your Jesus stuff. And at the same token, I'm going out, walking around at night, 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, begging God to help me. God sends this lifeboat, and I'm like, no, I'm not interested in getting in. Why didn't I accept it when he first brought me? I don't know. But I got to the point where I finally went to this individual and said, you need to tell me about Jesus. Why? Why did it take so many? I don't know. It's a mystery. That's the way the kingdom of God is. That's the way the seed works. God has to make it grow. Not us. All Bob did was he kept chasing me around. Trying to figure out a different way to talk to me. He knew he couldn't make me do anything. He knew it wasn't his job to make me listen. So all he did was do the best he could to be the witness he needed to be. Found a way to be my friend. Taught me to play guitar. Invited me to some of the meetings. And when I was willing, because God moved my heart through this mysterious growth, if you will, Bob harvested. That's what this farmer did. Probably one of the greatest mysteries of the kingdom of God is that the church continues to grow regardless of the persecution. Isn't it amazing? Think about that. It defies common sense, does it not? It absolutely defies common sense that the more you try to stomp out a pest, that they grow. Is that usually what we see? You know, I spray for ticks every year to kill all the ticks. I put weed killer on my lawn, which... Kind of works, you know. What pest do we know that as you try to stamp it out, just becomes more of a problem? Humans. (laughs) Humans. 
I'm not saying that the kingdom of God is a pest. I'm simply saying that the reality of it is the world considers the church a pest. China now is stomping on the church. They better look out. It's going to explode. Because it always does. Why? It's a mystery. How it grows, nobody knows. The last parable that we see here is the parable of the mustard seed. Verses 30-34. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. This very last parable here talks about the lowly mustard seed. Now one thing we've got to clear up here Two things to keep in mind. The black mustard seed is probably what Marcus refer, what Jesus was referring to here. It was the smallest seed in Palestine at the time. It was not the smallest seed in the world. Jesus doesn't say that it was. He says it's the smallest seed in the soil. He's referring to Palestine, something they were familiar with. And he's speaking proverbially here too, not literally or technically. So again, it's not referring to the smallest possible seed in the world, but the smallest seed in Palestine at the time. But the focus of this parable is found in the contrast. Notice that he says it's the smallest of seed that grows into the largest of plants. And that was true with this. Because the mustard plant grew to almost be 12 feet tall. Have you ever seen a black mustard seed? It's like a poppy seed, real tiny. And so it was the smallest seed in Palestine, but it also made the largest plant in Palestine as well. And so the teaching here is found in the contrast. What's the point that Jesus is making? You notice that he came preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That was Mark chapter 115. He basically says this is the beginning of the end. The kingdom of God is at hand. But so far it's just Jesus, a few followers, and a much larger group of religious leaders trying to destroy him. So what you basically have is who's the mustard seed in this case? Christ and his followers. Just the smallest of groups. In fact, they were the smallest of religious groups even at the time. So they are the smallest of the groups. But if the smallest seed grows into the largest plant, what do we suppose is going to happen with the smallest group, Jesus and his followers? Well, William Lane, who's got a great commentary in the book of Mark, says it this way. The day will come when the kingdom of God, which basically starts with one man and a group of 11 followers. I won't count Judas in there. The day will come when the kingdom of God will surpass in glory the mightiest kingdoms of the earth. Isn't that what we see? Today, Christianity is the largest single religious group in the world. Now, we know not all of them are probably saved, meaning it's a mix. But the reality of it is, how in the world did the smallest group of individuals transform and revolutionize the world? Ultimately, in the end, when God harvests this mighty harvest, there will likely be billions and billions and billions and billions of souls that are saved. The smallest seed becomes the largest plant. 
That's the mystery of the kingdom of God. How does this small, ragtag group of followers become this monstrous kingdom of God with billions and billions and billions of lives changed and brought to Christ? What an encouragement that must have been for the disciples. Can you imagine that? What are we doing here, Jesus? Especially after they were scattered when Jesus died and rose again. To be sent out with this mission, go make disciples of all nations. And they're probably thinking, what? Us? Rome hates us. But to be reminded, yeah, but the smallest seed will make the largest kingdom. So, let's just wrap this up briefly here. The kingdom of God is like the sower who scatters seed. Many will reject Jesus in the gospel, but there will be those who accept it. And it will grow into a bountiful harvest. Will it not? The kingdom of God is like the parable of the lamp in that Jesus didn't come in secret or to be hidden under a cover, but rather to shine light and reveal God's kingdom. We follow that ourselves now. We might put ourselves into the category of the lamp. The kingdom of God, he said, is like the parable of measures in that those who listen carefully and accept the word will be given more and those who don't will have what they do have taken away. Think about all the religious leaders of Jesus' day. What happened to them? By AD 70, he crushed the temple and scattered all the leaders. The kingdom of God, he said, is like the parable of growth of the seed and that it grows supernaturally and mysteriously. Nobody knows exactly how God's kingdom grows, but it does. And then lastly, he said the kingdom of God is like the parable of the mustard seed, that it begins as the smallest of movements with the fewest of men and women, but it will ultimately grow into the mightiest of kingdoms. Pretty amazing stuff. So that's what we have there. Again, this explanatory section where Jesus explains to us mysteries of how the kingdom of God works, what it looks like, um, which kind of looks back at what has happened already in the gospel, but will also explain some of the things that will be coming across in the future here.